Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Jan, good morning, full studio. Isn't it? Isn't it delightful? Um, it's marvellous. We've got old authors and new authors, and that's just on uh, their preference, preference of being your, here. Your, your author doesn't look that old. Ah, but what do you mean by before. old authors? People that have been here before <laughs> and people that haven't been here before, who are newbies. Yep. Well, we better get started. David Carlin is used to writing about people who put themselves in awkward positions. Earlier this year, I spoke with David about his biography, The Abyssinian contortionist, and and I'm doing awkward positions with my tongue saying that. Welcome back, David. Thank you very much. It's very appropriate. (laughs) The Abyssinian contortionist was a whole book about Sassina. Sassina? Sassina Wagayu. Yep, an asylum seeker from Ethiopia. But I've got you back this time to talk about an essay, an essay set in Bangkok. Who have you put in, in an awkward position? Uh, well, usually when I write, I, I often write um, non-fiction, um, which uh, narrative non-fiction or sometimes people call it literary non-fiction or creative non-fiction. And um, I think that sort of writing is most successful if you put yourself in an awkward position, <laughs> usually. Um, so um, this, this this essay, um, which is um, in our anthology, The Near and the Far, and it's called Unmade in Bangkok. And... It came out of a, a kind of embarrassing or, or, you know, privately embarrassing situation that I was in. I've, um, I went to Bangkok for a conference, a, li- a literary conference, and I hadn't been there before. And one of the things that you notice when you're in Bangkok, or I noticed, was that there was a lot more transgender people that were um, obvious in the in the streets and in the world. You just you just sort of see it more than you do in in other places. So I had that in the back of my mind, and then all, and then um, what really sparked me was I was, um, I had um, a, a rash on my face, and I, so I, I had this um, bad skin, and before I'd gone, my partner had said to me, "Why do you use concealer to make that look a bit better?" And I'd, as a, and as a man, I'd never thought of putting on makeup to to cover up. You know those blemishes, which for 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 many women might be might be an obvious thing, and so I was putting on this concealer by myself in my hotel room, and I and I thought I've got to try and hide the fact that I'm putting on concealer because I'm a man and men don't make themselves up, women make themselves up, and so then I got into this interesting sort of thought, you know, thinking in my head about how we make ourselves up in our gender roles, and not just and so at the same time I was looking in the streets to transgender people who have to think much more consciously about that because they they aren't they don't feel like they belong in the gender role that they were given but what I was trying to do in the essay was to explore kind of how we all do that we all make ourselves up within our within our gender roles so then I played in the essay um with because norm, normally when you write non-fiction you write in the first person mm. and sometimes people have written um very interestingly in the third person um so they've written memoirs and those sorts of things where instead of writing, you know, I was young and so and so, they write he was young, but they're still talking about themselves. And so then I was experimenting in this essay with switching between could I write about myself using the using the feminine, she, 
and what would happen. So I'm not, I wasn't like um, writing on behalf of women, but I was trying to go, could it still be me and be she? And, and trying to do that was like so confronting and difficult that it became like, a, for me, an interesting thing to play with. And so in the essay, I switch between these two voices of a she voice and a he voice, and they start having a kind of, um, you know, a kind of um, a dialogue, internal dialogue in my head. So all of this was kind of happening in my head and, I, and within, within this sort of strange hotel in a faraway place. <laughs> so you're writing about dressing up and dressing down in the male and female performance, and, and that's then linked with what's fiction and what's reality. And here you even throw in a quote from Virginia Woolf. Yes, well, that I, that, that was fun too because I started thinking um, you, the one thing that I like doing in nonfiction is including those elements of our nonfictional reality which include our fantasies or our memories or the things that we bring in. And so, you know, I, I had been reading um, and thinking a bit about Virginia Woolf and so she kind of popped into my head. And so I, I thought, well, it's like she's popped into the hotel. So then I kind of went, I, I started imagining that she was down the end of the corridor, kind of like giving a, giving a speech to the, to the cleaning staff. And so I kind of play with this, with this idea that suddenly the hotel is full of, you know, people. Weird like and wonderful, yes. yes. Yeah, and yeah. essayists and people who could comment about essays and how they're written. Well, that's David Carlin's piece in uh, The Near and Far. Virginia Woolf also appears in one of the other short stories. It's in the 1 to 25,000 by Francesca Rendell Short. Um, she's Francesca's also been in, into 3CR she, with her book Bite Your Tongue. But here she's written, she set her piece, well, she's writing it in Arizona, but she's writing about whether she should go to the Grand Canyon and that that reignites in her mind other decisions that she's made. Yeah, so that, that uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece Um and again, like like lots of the pieces in 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 this book that we put together in this collection, the near and the far, um, a lot of them do come out of of this tension. They're either written, you know, somewhere um, out of our normal place. Like so, in, yeah. In her case, she's gone all the way across the world to Arizona, and being in that that environment and this kind of the high desert of northern Arizona, which in some ways is reminiscent of Australia, and in some ways is really different. She the the lovely thing is that yeah she's kind of transported back to her early adulthood mm. and to um, relationships that she had that you know that she sort of because because she thinks to herself oh you know there was this person who was you know she used to be married to who was mm. significant that and she thought oh it'd be kind of amazing for him to be here so he kind of was there with her but she also knew that she didn't want him to be there with her because her life had completely changed by then. A little bit like your Virginia Woolf. (laughs) Now, we better get on to tell exactly why and how you and Francesca are involved in this short story essay collection. Uh, Yes, well, Francesca and I have edited the book um, which Scribe have published and we're really... really, um, proud of it and excited about it because it's it's bringing together 21 different writers from uh from diverse writers from australia with writers from um the asian region so there's writers from philippines myanmar singapore um hong kong vietnam Mm. all of these different countries and the 
um, and it comes out of this program that we've been doing for the past few, few years called RICE, which stands for which is RICE with a W, Writers' Immersion and Cultural Exchange. Mm. And, and the idea of this program, which we're, we've, we've got this fantastic funding from the Copyright Agency Cultural Fund to do it. And basically, it's a really simple idea of cultural exchange based on bringing together a group of writers, a different group of writers each year, Australians with, with different invited writers from different um, countries in the, in the Asian region and having a, a collaborative residency together where we all go somewhere in a different country in, in the region and then we also six months later bring everybody back to Melbourne for the Melbourne Writers Festival and just through the writers having time to work on, on, their, on their work but also then having time to sit around a table together and share their work with each other, which share, share what what is kind of most important about their culture as writers, which is their own creative work. And um, and there's this wonderful depth of conversation that happens. Uh, and, you know, I think, because I think for me and for lots of Australians, you know, we're brought up thinking about looking to to Europe and North America for our, mm. for our culture and our literature. And we really don't read much of, you know, Indonesian literature or Filipino literature. And, and once you start you know, sort of sit around the table with these people and hear their stories and listen, you know, start reading their work, you think, my God, this is, this is yeah. such a whole and this is such wonderful stuff. Look, uh, Maxine Benabo-Clark, she's an Australian writer of Afro-Caribbean heritage. This is what she said. Expectations, misunderstandings and assumptions around writing, race and culture. These are some of the issues we discussed during the residency. Musing long into the night as the lights went down over Penang in the downstairs common room. You know, sort of all of this type of feel. And you get that whole feel through these short stories. Yeah, we and we're, we're really careful in in um, in curating the group of writers each year that we we don't have a sort of a lineup of five Anglo Australians on one side and five you know quotes Asians on the other side mm. because everybody has kind of hybrid identities and so we've had Omar Musa who's Malaysian Australian we've had Melissa Lukashenko who's mm. Indigenous Australian um, and uh, and this year we had Alice Pung um, and. Uh, so, you, you get. You, it, I think the other great thing about it is that it breaks down. It, 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 it people enjoy the sense of complexity of all the different cultures because, for instance, there's also one of our um, wonderful uh, writers who's Filipino um, called Laurel Fantauzo, oh, yes. and she's now based in Singapore. But she, her piece in here. Um, is about she grew up in California because her parents emigrated from the Philippines to California and now um, and her piece is called Some Hints About Travelling to the Country Your Family Departed. And that was an incredible piece about the corruption, what she saw when she went back there. Because yeah, she because she's moved back there to try and to, 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 to live there. Out, yeah. But and and she feels like she belongs there, but she also doesn't belong there. Mm, that yeah. was beautifully written, wasn't it? And the individual pain when she asked people about the martial law that was happening, you really felt that. Yeah, and you, you, the other thing which I think is really interesting, you know, there's a um, wonderful writer, Bernice Chowley from Malaysia, and she writes about the 1998 uprisings in Kuala Lumpur, and she talks about Kuala Lumpur at that time as being this sort of wild city of parties mm. and drugs and... Um, and kind of youthful excitement and completely different from any impression I had of what, mm. what Kuala Lumpur was like. Mm. So it, it's really fascinating to kind of break through those, 
you know, the, those cliches and whatever. Kate Kennedy, now that's an Australian author that we'd all know. Now she she was in Vietnam and what I thought was interesting in complete contrast to another short story was how she wrote about the motorbike mayhem of Vietnam with you know, bikes going everywhere. But she also spoke, uh, wrote about how she felt she couldn't communicate with, and she, she knew some of these old men who were sitting had stories, but she couldn't find their stories. And then in contrast to that, there was Alvin Pung. Alvin Pung wrote The Eloy of Cant, Canty Mural. Now, Alvin's telling a story, a myth, just as the character is made up, so many of the words, mm. which I thought was just great. If you don't know the words, you just make them up. <laughs> but you still get that whole gist of, you know, Universal story of love and loss. Yeah, his Alvin Pang is a, 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 um, a beautiful um, and very well-known poet from Singapore. Um, but his piece in the in this yes is this short story, which is um, kind of mythic about this mm, mythic community. It's, it's great. And as you say, it involves um, he's made up this this language, um, and so it's sort of peppered through with these terms. And, and it takes you a little while to begin with you to kind of catch on to what to what he's doing. Um, but yeah, that 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 that's a kind of a common theme, I suppose, is is that thing of, you know, um, familiarity and displacement, and um, and with Kate Kennedy, one of the really poignant things about her piece about Vietnam is she's she's going there and feeling um, quite, you know, uh, that it's quite a foreign place that she can't um, enter in some ways, but also she feels this really strong connection because of because her father was a Vietnam veteran and he'd come back with these with these stories and and um, and lack of stories yeah and so she she feels you know a connection yes. through that as well look one more that I want to speak about because there are so many there's 20 or so different writers and oh they're varied and as, as much as you can imagine Zazi an American with an Indonesian heritage oh, Shusi. Zuzi yeah. reflects on what a calendar is, BC before Christ, BCE before Common Era, or should it be BG and PG before Google and <laughs> post Google? <laughs> and just there's a lot of reflective pieces, you know, all through this. Yes, and yes, yeah, Susie, um, she's another person with a, a hybrid, you know, um, mm. fantastic story. You know, she she's Chinese, Indonesian Chinese. Um, but grew up in Hong Kong, lives in Hong Kong now, also lives in the States um, uh, um, some of the time. And she she comes to writing from a kind of background in in, um, in the corporate world. So, um, so you know, in the financial <laughs> sector, I think. Yeah, BG, yeah. So absolutely. She, so, um, so she brings all that to her, her Look, worldview. I thought it was fantastic. It was good to get all these feels of different cultures. So I've been speaking with David Carlin about his book, The Near and the Far, published by Scribed. Thanks, David. Thanks very much, Jen. Wonderful. Thank you, David. But I'm on to an Australian author, or two Australian authors, in fact. Uh, the poet Judith Wright is an icon of Australian letters, a glimpse of whom is often seen in English curriculums in schools across the country. But now, Georgina Arnott provides a more intricate insight in the partial biography she's written entitled The Unknown Judith Wright. So, Georgina, welcome to 3CR. Thanks very much for having me. Can you give us a quick snapshot of Judith Wright. Who is she and what's her reputation? 
Well, um, I've been working on this book for about 10 years, so I've had lots of barbecue conversations about Judith Wright. Um, and it tends to be only people who are under 50 who ask me, who is Judith Wright? Um, over 50-year-olds brought up in Australia would tend to have studied her at high school. She, um, as you say... There's often a poem or two, but that's all the glimpse we get. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I think there's, there's, a, there's a... She had a huge um, following, and she still does. There's many um, avid readers of her work today. But... Um, that yeah that that I guess is the thing she's most well known for. Um, but during her fifties um, and um, or her forties, her fifties and her sixties, she became very involved in activism. Um, initially, as an environmental activist, she was um, really interested in um, protecting wildflowers in the area where, where she was living in Mount Tambourine in Queensland, and. Um, from this, she got involved in other environmental campaigns, including the Great Barrier Reef, and then was, in fact, the president of the Queensland Wildlife Protection Society for 10 years. And from that came the Australian Conservation Foundation. So she had a really big role in establishing Australian environmentalism. Um, and then during the, the later decades of her life, um, she died in 2001, but in, during the... Um, during the 80s, 90s, um, she became very involved in or very concerned about the lives of Aboriginal people, um, mainly through her relationships with, um, well, I suppose prompted by her relationships with Ujuru, the poet, um, whose work she championed, and through her relationship with Nugget Coombs. Um, so, yeah, that's, I guess that's the most concise. Concise. Answer I so, can the give. environment, uh, Indigenous affairs, also uh, women's issues as well, in, in some ways. Um, so, she is known for these areas, but in some ways, your uh, biography or identifies some clashes because of her upbringing. I just want to touch on another issue here a partial biography. Mm. What have you mm. done? Mm. Well, um, it is a biography of her early life and her family background and um, uh, I guess you could say it's unconventional, although um, I work as an historian, a research assistant, and um, part of my interest is in biography and I've really come to learn about um, the many different forms of biography that are now um, being written and I think it's a new development. I think tend there tends to be less full-life biographies today. Um, many people have written biographies of family members, of friendships, um, of partial life biographies, um, um, biographies of groups of all sorts of amazing sort of groups of people connected even for a moment or through a workplace, for instance. And um, often these these just sort of, these sort of more, more intense close looks at people's, um, one aspect of people's lives or one period can, I think, be... They can they can illuminate a lot about that historical period. Well, this is where it becomes interesting because yeah. basically you've taken Judith's story mm. uh, right back to uh, her colonial ancestry and the book finishes in her university days and it sort of raises a number of clashes with the preconceived notion I have, having taught one or two poems in my teaching career, not really understanding uh, the full background of Judith Wright, um, but you and so you also mentioned being an historian. So we get a colonial history. It almost reads like a history at 
sometimes. But with this colonial history, she's connected to the Wyndham estate. Mm. Yes. Well, um, another great Australian writer, Donald Horne, um, said he, when he wrote his memoir that he was telling, he wanted to sh- um, tell history through people, through himself, through individuals. And I guess that was, a for me, a guiding principle that I wanted... I wanted to, to look at this person, but mainly I wanted to look at the different contexts for her life, um, the historical context, the things that she was in, the groups that she was engaged with, networks, um, and the influences on her. And really, um, arguably, the primary influence influence on her life was um, this her family, uh, as I guess you could say for most of us. But when we know something about Judith's family, that might seem surprising. Um, she... Um, she, her first um, Australian forebears, the Wyndhams of now of the Wyndham estate fame, wine label fame, um, although there's no connection these days. But then this brings up one of the clashes I mentioned before, because in that colonial past, the squatocracy, so to speak, dispossession of the Indigenous people. So there would seem to be a sort of clash with her uh traditional heritage mm, there. Yes. That was the first one, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Wyndhams occupied huge acreages in um, in New South Wales and in Queensland um, from, the eight, from 1827 onwards. And they were one of the biggest landowning pastoralist families in, in those states. Um, and they did dispossess um, Aboriginal local communities, well, Aboriginal groups in various different areas in those states. Um Judith, as you may know, as, as listeners may know, she wrote two um, book-length histories of her family and that's, you know, indicative of the influence they had over her. And um, these early uh, Australian forebears were, began her story, I suppose, her family Australian story. And um, they, in the first history, The Generations of Men, published in 1959, she wrote a you know really positive history of their lives and her and um and her own grandparents and their pastoral endeavors um and uh the in the 80s when she learned more about the history of australia um and the lives of indigenous people she wrote a much more critical history of um australia and the the established what she called the great pastoral invasion of australia and then you've got uh, her own immediate family um, and her father uh, was a pastoralist and, and such like. While Philip acknowledged that some considered him a selfish land grabber, accumulating large areas when thousands were seeking land in vain, he felt vindicated by his principled management of the land. While I have undoubtedly always been in the large landholder class, I have felt justified in the position because I never held land that I did not better um, that I did not do better with than the original holder. And on principle, I never bought land from smallholders who had any chance of making a success of it. Moreover, in a number of cases, I leased small holdings from the owners and, after improving the land, returned it to them, thus enabling them to carry on. This was a self-conscious form of noblesse oblige. And again, given that she was such an environmentalist, you have this... Um, notion of improvement of the land which would have been in conflict perhaps yes um i mean phillips her father is a really interesting figure because um he he did do he was involved in um early um 
research in so- soil erosion um, in pastoral properties and um, was connected with the University of Sydney there. Um, but he um, and he also helped establish a national park in New England. He was a major. He became the Chancellor of um, University of New England. So he was a. Well, the other interesting fact that yeah. you, you bring yeah. up there with Philip about New England and wanting to make it a separate state, which yes. I didn't know about. So he really led that campaign, um, to which began um, in the. 1920s, went through the 30s and then in the 40s and 50s um, to establish a new state, a seventh state, they called it a seventh state movement um, out of New England and the areas around it, including Newcastle. Um, he was very active um, and um, ultimately that failed through a referendum. But there was huge public support and there is public support for these separatist movements throughout Australia even today. But um, I mean, I guess what all this goes towards is his sense of public spirit and it was it was not associated with the same sort of causes in in a way I guess and he he was also involved in the establishment of the country party um and whereas Judith is as we know is kind of this icon of left-wing activist movements throughout the 20th century so there certainly is a tension there but the way she saw it and I guess also the way a lot of people have seen it. There, there was a there was a um, inheritance there, a sense of public spirit, um, and she interpreted the world differently to them. But she carried, um, as with her colonial forebears, she carried a sense of wanting to improve society according to what she how she believed it should yes. be improved. We all carry the baggage of our forebears with us, and the biography sort of then uh, focuses on. Judith's university days, of which there hasn't been that much written previously? That's right. Hardly anything. And, yeah, that's mainly because there, it, it didn't seem that there were any sources. Judith and, left, left no sources from that period. But you have found some sources. Yes. What have you found? Yeah. I, I found um, um, in Honiswa, which is the University of Sydney um, student newspaper, uh, 13 columns that Judith wrote as a student Um when she was a student there in the 1930s um, studying arts. And um, she wrote the social column and um, you would think that would be a fairly tame thing, but not in Judith's hands. She was, um, (laughs) she was, she was wild. She was rude. She was hilarious. She was a great writer. Um, And, and she was an absolute rebel. And um, she, she celebrated those who didn't go to lectures, who didn't study, who, um, went to the pub and drank all day, um, and she was yeah she was also rude um, as I was surprised to discover about um, I suppose initially I was surprised to discover about a group of people called who she referred to as the settlement scavengers, which um, shall I explain? Go for it. Um, the settlement was a benevolent society established by some figures at the University of Sydney who believed, and following from the English settlement movement, who believed that the only way that poverty would really be overcome was by um, powerful members of society engaging socially with the poor. So they um, enabled this by conducting social events such as football matches, um, and they also provided charity for them. And this is a time when in Sydney, um, in around 1935, um, when there was huge unemployment still. The Depression had finished officially, but um, there was a lot of poverty was rife. Um, so there were these um, football matches and other events, and Judith 
referred to them in her columns, the people receiving charity, as scavengers and um, made lots of jokes about them, which none of which were <laughs> particularly complimentary. And I, I guess, yeah, as I say, initially I was surprised given that she went on to be such a champion of um, disadvantaged people in Australian society and... Um, and also because the, the, the one biography that had existed on Judith un- until now um, had really emphasised that she had been born um, empathetic and that it was kind of, a, to me, quite a romantic image of this, this person growing up in a pastoral society, being extremely privileged but, but um, always siding with the... Um, the victim, and this showed that no, she didn't actually. She 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 developed her politics through um, her interactions with the world. And you've also found some anonymous poems. Yes, she, some poems she wrote as a student, um, um, and that she never identified. And I was able to identify um, using the the initials and connecting them with other. Um, Bits and pieces from her life, I suppose, and her writing. We're her probably not going to yep. get time to read yep. one out um, there, so that's that's unfortunate. But the question is, how fair is it then to look at university days and things like that uh, as indicative of the individual, uh, given that at university you change so much? Absolutely, and I'm not really particularly proud of a lot of <laughs> things I did around that age either, as most of us aren't, and it makes it fun to look at other people and their, their time at that age because people are a bit wild. But I think in the case it is justified because it helps us understand her creative development, her intellectual development, and really we're only able to understand a person through seeing how they changed, I think, or seeing their life course rather than just imagining that they um, sort of appear in their 30s writing fantastic poetry from out of nowhere. Well, uh, the unknown Judith Wright, the listener can read for themselves. The author is Georgina Arnott and it is a University of Western Australia publication. Yes, very very proudly. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners.